All right. You guys look great this morning. Uh, you don't look like you lost an hour of sleep at all. You, you look really wide awake. I'm running on coffee this morning. I'm going to warn you. I always get kind of rammy when that happens. I went to bed at midnight and woke up at 1. What a, what a, it's like my, my body's got this mechanism where I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not allowed to average more than four hours a night. So the night before, I got like eight hours. So last night was paybackers or something like that. I don't know what it is. It's crazy. But, so I'm running on coffee. Watch out. God can really move when you've got some caffeine in you. We're now dealing with a passage of scripture that started with Jesus uh, casting a demon out of a man. So we're talking about demons. We're talking about the devil. We're talking about spiritual warfare. I want to entitle this message, Fighting the Right Enemy. Because we often fight the wrong enemy. We usually fight the wrong enemy. We saw last week, uh, the passage we're, we're chewing on right now starts with verse 14 and goes through verse 23. We saw last week that the episode starts with Jesus casting out a mute demon, or a demon of muteness, a demon that caused a man to be mute. And the people were all freaked out by that because it was widely believed uh, in the first century that mute demons, or demons that caused muteness, were the hardest ones to cast out. Because it was widely believed that you had to get the name of a demon before you could cast it out, and mute demons don't talk. But Jesus comes along and casts the demon out with no problem, so the people are pretty impressed. Well, not all of them. Some of them are impressed. Because others think that he's casting demons out by the power of Beelzebul, which is the prince of demons. And so they accuse him of being the devil. So Jesus refutes that by saying, look at if I'm the devil casting out my own demons, there's a civil war going on, and how can my house stand if I'm the devil? Uh, but clearly Satan's house is standing very well in this world. There's a powerful force out there. So clearly your argument is wrong. And then Jesus tells him what he has come to do, what's really going on as he's casting out demons. And he tells the story, it begins in verse 21. It's kind of a mini parable. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house. He's talking about Satan here, and the house is creation. His possessions are safe. And his possessions are right now everything in this world. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, and now Jesus is talking about himself, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. That's what's going on right now. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is what Jesus came to do. He is the one who's stronger than the strong man because the strong man, Satan, is, is, is all about evil and he's all about love. And love, as we said last week, always conquers evil. And now he's come to divide up the plunder and he's commissioned us and empowered us to join him in this process where we take this plot of land called earth which was supposed to belong to God and we were supposed to be its landlords it's been taken over by the hostile powers but now our job is to finish up the work uh, in the power of Christ that he began on Calvary that's what he's here to do and now I want to look at that same passage of scripture but from a little bit different angle with a little bit different emphasis and so I'd like you to join me here in prayer Lord my prayer this morning is the Elijah prayer it's the prayer of uh, that, that, our, that, that he prayed for his servant, that his eyes would be opened to see the reality of the spiritual realm. Lord, lift the blinders from our eyes, lift the lies from our minds to help us to see, not just theoretically, intellectually, but actually in our gut, the reality of the warfare going on around us, and make us valiant, fearless, bold, animated, spirit-empowered soldiers. In this battle, in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. 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 
Okay, last week I, I began by laying out kind of a big picture. that uh, this, this earth was, uh, belongs to God and we were supposed to be its landlord, but we, early on in our primordial history, we're talking about Adam and Eve, we surrendered our authority over the devil. And now, as we saw last week, the Satan is the god of this age and the one who controls the entire world. The earth has been seized by Satan and all the other angels that rebelled with him. And they're called principalities and powers and dominions and authorities, and they go by a lot of different names. I want to just refer to them as the powers, the, the fallen powers that are hostile to God. This earth is seized by these forces. That's why as you look at the world, you can see a lot of beautiful stuff that glorifies God, but you also find a lot of demonic stuff that points in the opposite direction. As evidence of our diabolical bondage last week, I pointed to the fact that human, human beings, even though we are profoundly smart in some ways, we're incredibly stupid in other ways. And the chief example I gave last week is that despite how smart we are in many respects, we can't figure out after all this time a way to stop killing each other. Evidence of our diabolically induced stupidity is that we spent 30 times more on killing weapons last year as a race than we did feeding and housing uh, the poor of the world. If we took 3% of what we spend on, on killing weapons and spent that to house and feed people, we could house and feed all the poor on the planet for an entire year. And I pointed out last week that just the money that the U.S. spent in the war in Iraq last year, 2006, 2006 could have fed and housed all the poor on the planet for six, six times over. For $40 billion, we could feed and house all the poor on the planet. Now... A few people were a little offended by my message last week. First time it's ever happened, I was, I was shocked. <laughs> and, 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 but, you know, they had a legitimate complaint. Here, here's the complaint. Uh, they, they thought I was making a political statement. And, and they thought I'd promised I'm not into politics. Some felt I was, ba I was bashing Republicans for getting us into this war. Another person thought I was bashing the U.S. for all of its military spending. And, and I, I apologize for that misunderstanding. I, I tried to be clear. And I think it, it got through to, for most people. But I, I, I said that I don't care what your political opinion is as to whether or not it's necessary that the U.S. or any other country spends the military spending it spends. Even if it is necessary, it's an insane necessity. It's insane that we human beings have created the kind of world where that kind of spending would be necessary. Amen? So... So it's not, about the, it's not about Democrats or Republicans or any political party, and it's not about the U.S. or any other country. It's about humanity. And humanity is diabolically stupid. I rest my case. We're so stupid, it requires a supernatural explanation. That's my point, and the Bible gives us one. We're oppressed by the powers. So we can't, even our best efforts to try to bring peace sometimes backfire and create even more bloodshed as happened with Einstein and creating the atom bomb. One person noted that it's a little ironic, if not contradictory, that on the one hand, I stress so much spiritual warfare in my preaching and in my writing. I wrote a book called God at War. So there's this big warfare motif. And on the other hand, I repeatedly stress as central to the gospel, the call of kingdom people to live free of violence, to love our enemies, to turn the other cheek. And, and they thought there was a tension, if not a contradiction, between this warfare motif and this a peace motif. And actually, that's a criticism I've received quite a bit over the last five years, and I'd like to take this opportunity right now to respond to it, if I may. <laughs> See, 
the fact is, my emphasis on spiritual warfare and my stance against human warfare is not only compatible with one another, but I believe they require each other. I believe that one of the main reasons we're so quick to engage in human warfare is because we're so slow at engaging in spiritual warfare. Instead of pillaging the enemy's house and taking it back for God, we pillage each other. When I was on vacation in Mexico a couple weeks ago, I read a book. Oh, one of the books I read was a book by Vern Eller. I don't agree with everything in this book, but I, I thought it was a very uh, provocative book. It's called War and Peace from Genesis to Revelation by Vern Eller. And, and it answered this question. Why are we humans so quick to turn on each other? Whether it's through literal war or whether it's just through the hostile way we think about each other and talk about each other and gossip about each other and judge one another and the way we tear each other down, we do that very well. It's almost instinct to us. And this book kind of answers that. Here's what Eller says. He argues, I think very persuasively, that we are created in the image of a God who, out of his perfect love, is willing to get ferocious to protect what is beautiful and precious and good and true. There is a warrior streak in God. Not a violent streak, but a warrior streak when it comes to protecting beauty and standing up against evil. And we, human beings, are made in the image of that God. And so there's something like a warrior instinct inside of each one of us, a fighter instinct. And Eller finds this, in fact, even in the Genesis narrative. In Genesis 1, God says, have dominion over the earth and over the animals. And Eller argues, I think persuasively, that the concept of dominion uh, has, has the connotation of being willing to fight for something. We're to be fighters. And then God tells Adam in Genesis 2 to guard the garden. In Hebrew, it's guard. Now, it's usually translated to till the garden. As though the most dangerous thing Adam had to watch out for were weeds. <laughs> guard the garden from weeds. And it actually could mean that. But then again... Weeds and thorns and that stuff in the Genesis narrative doesn't come till after the fall, so I don't think that's what it's referring to. When we turn to Genesis 3, we find out there's something a little bit more sinister than weeds that shows up, and that's the serpent. And Adam's job, and Adam and Eve's job, and humanity's job was to guard this plot of land against him, and of course we didn't do it very well because we succumbed uh, to his temptation and delivered our authority over to him. But, but Eller argues that, that our original constitution made in the image of God is, is, is to be a fighter. We're sort of like created to be soldiers that are stationed at an outpost, an island, if you will, amidst the, 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 uh, the king's kingdom. And our job is to guard this plot of land. But we didn't do that very well. We, we fell under the power of the enemy. And then, see, as soon... In, right in the Genesis narrative, as soon as we rebel against God and join the angelic rebellion against God, we turn on one another. And that's not a coincidence. Adam turns on Eve, and then their, their firstborn son turns on their secondborn son, Cain and Abel. Cain slays Abel. First generation, there's murder. And then violence escalates so quickly that God has to protect Cain from the other human beings murdering Cain. And then in seven verses later, in, in, in Genesis chapter 4, we find this guy named Lamech who's boasting about how vengeful he is and how many people that he has killed. And so why are we hostile towards one another? Well, we're separated from God and we're oppressed by evil forces. But because of those two things, Eller argues that we've misdirected our fighting instinct. When we forget who we're really fighting, we start fighting the wrong foes. 
we're wired to resist the principalities and the powers. But when that no longer is happening, we turn on each other and we devour one another. Jesus is the prototype for what human beings were created to be. He's our model. And you might notice this in the Gospels. Jesus never declares war on human beings. He never fights human beings. But he spends his entire ministry fighting demons, and his entire life is one prolonged revolt against the powers, the fallen powers. Every healing that Jesus engaged in and every exorcism that Jesus engaged in was a revolt against the powers and the demonic forces that oppress this world and fuel sickness and disease and demonic oppression. And Jesus' solidarity with the poor revolted against the powers that oppress culture by fueling greed and creating poverty. And Jesus' consistent love for beggars and lepers and women who were considered second-class citizens in the first century world and, and sinners who were judged by religion, his love for those folks revolted against the powers that oppress culture by, fuel, by fueling classism and religion. And the way he treated Samaritans and Gentiles and the Roman uh, centurion, um, the way he crossed the racial lines revolted against the powers that oppress culture by fueling racism. And the way he died on the cross, expressing the love of God, revolted against the powers that fuel violence and that fuel the urge of human beings to lord over one another. He does the opposite. He gives his life for the sake of his enemies. Jesus' life and his death was one sustained act of love toward people, and therefore it was one sustained act of revolt against the powers. In fact, it's really interesting. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before or not. But Jesus always treats human beings as victims. He never blamed anybody for the infirmity that they have. Even if it was caused or influenced by a demonic power, he never blames the victim. He treats them as victims. He never blamed anybody for being demonized. He never said, boy, you must have screwed up in your past or played with a Ouija board or something. He, he, just, he just sees the need and he meets it. In fact, on the cross, what does he do? He prays, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus never battled people. Rather, he fought for people by fighting against the powers. He would not give in to their influence. We are called to imitate Jesus in all respects. That's what it is to be Christian, Christ-like. And therefore, we're called to wage war the way Jesus did. Not against people, but against the powers. And the way we wage war against the powers is by refusing to do anything other than love people. Paul put it like this in Ephesians chapter 6. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against flesh and blood. But it is against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly realms. I'm referring to all those different levels of beings as the powers. These are the ones we're to be fighting against because these are our real enemies. If it's got flesh and blood, lock it in. It's not your enemy. If it's got flesh and blood, it's someone you're to be fighting for. And the way we fight for them is by resisting the powers which are always trying to get us to fight them, fight other human beings. Now here's the thing. Here's the thing. When we don't remain aware of the powers and the oppression on this world, when we're not really convinced that they're real, we instinctively and automatically misidentify the enemy. And we shoot in the wrong direction. 
To the extent that the powers aren't real to us, well, people are real to us, and we shoot in the direction of what we think is real. Our fighter impulse gets turned from the powers towards other people. So instead of fighting the powers that fuel violence by loving our enemies, we start hating our enemies and justify using violence against them. And that just further feeds the powers. Instead of fighting the powers that fuel legalism by loving Pharisees, we start getting self-righteous and start judging and despising the Pharisees. But that just feeds into the powers. Instead of fighting the powers that bring about heresy by standing up for truth and by loving our heretics or those we think are heretics, we start hating the heretics, acting violently towards the heretics, but that just further feeds the power. Powers. So much of church history is the church acting in non-loving ways towards those who regard as heretics, torturing them and killing them, but that just fuels the whole demonic realm. Instead of revolting against the powers that fuel racism by loving people of all races and even loving the racist, if we're not careful, we can easily end up starting to hate the racist. And that just further fuels the powers. Now this, this is hard, folks. This is hard. It's so easy to get sucked in. So easy. The powers are clever. Last Saturday, I was at a Super America station and I bought uh, some windshield washer fluid. And I walked in to purchase my windshield washer fluid. And there was, at the counter, a Caucasian clerk and an African-American clerk. And in front of the Caucasian clerk, there were two customers. One customer being checked out and one customer waiting. In front of the African-American clerk, there was no one. So the African-American clerk called to the person who was waiting in line. It was a white guy. He said, I'm open for business. The white guy turns to him and says, do you think I'm blind? Do you think I'm stupid? And then he looks over in this kind of direction and, and he, like he's looking at some potato chips and he goes, I'm checking off the price of potato chips if you, potato chips if you don't mind. The African-American clerk says, I'm just trying to help, letting you know that I work here. Well, then the customer who was being checked out by the Caucasian clerk left and this guy just walks up and starts buying his stuff. He wasn't checking out the chips. You couldn't even see the price of chips from where he was standing. Now, I'm seeing this. I haven't seen anything this overt in quite a while in terms of racism. And immediately my blood pressure, pressure raises, uh, my temperature raises, uh, my heart starts beating fast. I have an impulse to say things and do things <laughs> that might not be consistent with the character of Christ. And I had to just stop, take a few deep breaths, and I have to remember who the enemy is and who it isn't. And I have to remember that my one job in life is to remember that whatever I see in another person is a mere dust particle compared to the log in my own eye. And that I'm the chief sinner. And I have to remember that I'm, my one job as a kingdom person is to describe unsurpassable worth to all people at all times. And there's times where I enjoy that and there's times when I hate it and this time I hated it, but I have to do it. And so I just started praying for this guy. Lord, I agree with you. I'm trying to agree with you that he is unsurpassable worth, that he was worth you dying for. And I pray blessing on his life. And I pray, Lord, that you free him from the powers because the real enemy's not the guy. The real enemies are the powers that would oppress him and his racism and me and my self-righteousness against the racist. You see, the foe's up there. And by refusing to give in to that hatred and loving this person, that's my warfare against the powers, you see. And then I finally walked up to the African-American clerk and I, I just said, I, I am so sorry that you have to put up with crap like this. Um, and, and I thought we were beyond this, but apparently we're not. And, um, and he just said, he said, thanks, uh, but you know, what are you gonna do? And then I just sort of prayed a little blessing over him. The point is that we've gotta remember who our enemy is and who, who it's not, and so easy to get sucked in. 
It's so easy to get sucked in and identify what's right in front of you as the enemy. What's right in front of you is flesh and blood. It's not your enemy. If it's flesh and blood, it's one that you're fighting for. I'm fighting for that racist by waging war against the powers that, are, that try to oppress both of us. But see, if we're not convinced that the powers are real, then we just identify human enemies. And we get self-righteous and we get bitter and we get angry and we play, we're played by the powers. Now, what we're up against here, folks, is this. We're blinded by our culture towards the reality of the powers. If you do some cultural anthropology, you'll discover that most cultures throughout history have believed in the spiritual realm. In fact, most cultures throughout history, the spiritual realm was as real as the physical realm. In fact, in some cultures in history, like the Hivaro, for example, the spiritual realm was more real than the physical realm. And a lot of these cultures, a great deal of their time and energy was spent trying to figure out how do you negotiate with the spiritual realm and get magic to try to get the spiritual realm to be on your side and things of that sort. Our culture is very unique and very myopic in its widespread belief that the powers are not real. We're systematically blinded to that reality. And that's why, see, if we're not convinced that the powers are real, it's going to be very hard for us to be motivated to live as radical soldiers as though we really were in a, in a real war. If we're, if, if we're, until we're convinced that the powers are real, it's going to be very hard for us to resist declaring war on other human beings. So long as we're not convinced that the powers are real, we're going to be inclined to fight wars and battles the way the world does. With violent thoughts, with violent words, and sometimes with violent actions. Instead of with prayer and with love. How important it is that we lock this in, not just theoretically as a theoretical belief, but in our gut that this is real. Now, I asked, I asked the Lord this week, how can I help all of us do that? And the sense I got is that there's nothing really I can do to do that. God has to do that. Elijah prayed, uh, or was it like Elisha? I think it was Elisha. Prayed, God, open the eyes of my servant in 2 Kings 6. Or was it 2 Kings 7? I'm all screwed up. But I think it was 2 Kings 6. And, and he prayed, opened his eyes, and his servant's eyes were open, and he saw the angelic realm all around him. God's got to do it. But God said, I can use your words to do this. And so he's, I really felt impressed to share how my eyes were opened about the spiritual realm. Um, I'm going to share some things here that I haven't ever shared at Woodland Hills before. Um, I've shared them in classes sometimes a little bit. But see, it's the kind of thing where we in Western culture, when we hear stories like this, we can easily conclude, Looney Tune, wacko, get his meds right now, uh, rubber room time. Because um, in our worldview, this is, is, is considered insanity. Though you'll find that if you break the no talk rule about this stuff, a lot more people have had experiences like this than you'd ever dream. But here's how I really came into, uh, how I came into this, this awareness. Uh, my first experience was in rural Minnesota in 1988. And I think I have shared that story. I'm not going to repeat that one here. But uh, it was a case where I totally blew it. Nine months I was dealing with this young lady that was, now looking back on it, obviously demonized. She would, she would grunt and her head would twitch whenever I'd mention Jesus, for example. Um, and it didn't occur to me that she was demonized. Because I'm right out of Princeton and I got a nice little bag of tricks in my counseling and that's fine. But I wasn't, it wasn't on my radar screen to be looking for any kind of spiritual stuff. And so I totally blew this one. But that got, my, got me thinking. It was a little crack in my Western worldview that got me interested in exploring the reality of the spiritual realm. So for about three years I did some research. And then in 1991, 
I entered into a three-week period of time that was absolutely crazy. And I, I, it was like I got caught up in some kind of a, I describe it as a spiritual vortex of, 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 of warfare. I felt like I was in the center of, 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 of a giant war between God's side and the devil's side. And, and I was caught in this for three weeks. And given the complexity of the world and all the variables, we can never know why things turn out the way they do. So I'm not even going to try to guess at that. But I do know that what the enemy intended for evil, God intended for good. And he used that three weeks as sort of my boot camp, which completely altered my worldview forever. I, in a three-week period of time, encountered five separate cases of over-demonization. It was like everywhere I took, I was confronting the demonic in the most unexpected places like church and like a co Christian college and, 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 and a Christian retreat center. And it was wild. I'd never had anything like this before. Now, everywhere I turned, it was turning up. I'm going to share one of those episodes, one of the five. It was right in the middle. This was episode number three, and it happened in my own family. The background to it is this. I was the interim pastor at First Baptist Church in White Bear Lake. It's now Eagle Brook. And this church was just starting to turn the corner. It had been kind of stuck in some traditional ways of doing things. They had about 400 people, but it wasn't growing at all. And, and uh, God was using me in this time to plow some new ground, and it was really kind of going good. There's some pushback, but that's okay. And, and, and I really felt God moving there. Uh, the church is now like, like 10,000 people or something. I'm going to take credit for all of it because I laid the groundwork for it. There you go. Just kidding. <laughs> No, I'm kidding. But it, it, was some, it was some groundwork warfare. Now, what I found was that the better things were going at the church, the, the weirder things were going in my home. Among other things, my oldest daughter, who has always kind of had a precocious sensitivity to spiritual matters, she started having bizarre dreams and nightmares. And for a six-month period of time, there was this crescendoing of, of nightmares, bizarre nightmares, macabre nightmares uh, of, of stuff that she, as a nine-year-old, couldn't possibly have ever seen or heard about. I mean, it was violent, grotesque terrifying stuff. Then she started going through these night terrors where she was running around the house and she looked wide awake, but she was actually really asleep, but she was de seeing demonic forces and whatever. Then she starts to see this shadowy figure appear up in her room once in a while. And, and then the thing starts talking to her, saying, I'm going to kill you and your family. And my wife and I would always pray over her. And you got to understand that we weren't a family that talked about the demons or talked about devils or anything of that stuff. I think you got to be very careful at how much of that you do around little kids. Uh, you know, we want to emphasize Jesus and the mightiness of God and the holiness of God and victory and all that. But my daughter was seeing all this stuff. And so we prayed with her. And I also, you know, and this isn't irrational, I don't think, but I would tell her, you know, Danae, you have, maybe it's your imagination. You know, sometimes when you're falling asleep, your mind does funny things, and maybe that's what's going on here. I didn't want to discount it, but on the other hand, I didn't want to give it more credibility than it might have. Well, it all came to a head this one evening, and this is the craziest night of my life, and here's where you're going to want to lock me up. Um, okay, in this night, uh, my, my, my daughter was getting ready to go to bed, and my wife was combing her hair as they're getting ready to go to bed. She's wide awake, and all of a sudden, she starts looking around her like this, seeing things. And Shelly goes, what's, what's wrong? And she goes, they're here. Uh, and what she was seeing was these like bat figures coming out from the ceiling and swooping down at her. And she starts to freak out. And so she runs and jumps on her bed and she goes into fetal position and she starts crying hysterically. Uh, Shelly comes upstairs and gets me and I go down there. In fact, uh, she, she was a little beside herself. Uh, we go downstairs and there's, there's Danae curled up on the bed, 
ducking from these things that we can't see, but we could sense there's something cold in this room and, 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 there's, and my, my daughter's terrified and she's saying stuff that you wouldn't think a nine-year-old would be saying like, why is Satan more powerful than God and, and why isn't God protecting me and why has God abandoned me and, and, and it was just, and so all we could do is just try to reassure her that Jesus is victorious and we prayed over the room and prayed that she'd get calm and we just did warfare, warfare that we took authority over anything that she was seeing and, and things of that sort. Well, eventually they went away, praise God, and my daughter fell asleep. But that was just the beginning. Uh, we went upstairs, rather jittery, rather disturbed. Took us a while to get to sleep, but eventually we fall asleep. I wake up sometime later. I'm thinking it was about a half hour or an hour after I initially fell asleep. And I wake up to the, to the most rancid smell I think I've ever smelled in my life. I wake up and it's like, and I'm half awake, half asleep, but I'm smelling this putrid smell. And my first thought I remember very clearly was, honey, what did you have for supper? We got to go to the doctor tomorrow. Huh? Something's, something's way off here. I'm sitting there irritated by the smell. And then I feel a breathing on my neck. And the, then I hear this breath that is like a gurgly breathing, like someone with pneumonia. And then I diagnose in my half-sleep state that this, it, the smell is from this breath. And now I'm thinking something's seriously wrong with my wife. And then I move a little bit. I think I was going to like turn to tell her to turn the other direction so I didn't have to smell. And as I turn, I bump into my wife and I'm laying on my side and in a millisecond it occurs to me, my wife is not behind me, she's in front of me. Which raises the very interesting question, what is behind me? And it's like a, you know, a hundred cups of caffeine pumped into the, your heart in a millisecond. You are wide awake, you are sober, you're just... And, and I... I, I all I could, I froze with fear. Now, I wasn't nearly as mature in the spiritual realm as I am today. <laughs> today, I'd turn around and I'd say, what business? You got no business here. In Jesus' name, I take authority over you. I just take authority over it. But back then, I was a weenie in the spiritual realm. And so all I could do was freeze and pray, oh, Jesus, 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 oh, Jesus. I could not think of another thing to say, but praise God, the name of Jesus is strong. And I just froze and prayed Jesus, and the smell finally went away and the breathing went away. It was wild. It was just wild. I didn't want to wake Shelly up and tell her this because she wouldn't go to sleep the rest of the night. Why? And so I rolled over my back, and I just go into prayer, and I'm just doing spiritual warfare. And at some point, I start to fall asleep again. I know I'm getting tired again. This maybe was a half hour, 45 minutes later. I don't know. But I'm looking, and this is the, this is the one where you're really going to want to lock me up. But I'm looking at the ceiling fan as I'm praying. I think I'm awake. If I remember all this very clearly. And the ceiling fan starts to turn. It starts to rotate. And so I'm staring at this thing. Like, What? Because it's not on. And it starts to spin faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. And it, all of a sudden, it spins so fast, it turns into like a, a solid brown thing. And my first thought was, it looked like, excuse me here, lock me up if you want, a giant feces sticking through the ceiling of my, of my bedroom. And then the minute I tag it as that, it falls on me. It like shoots at me. I let out this blood-curling scream. I sit up in bed. <laughs> Shelly's like, what, 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 what? And I told her the ceiling fan just turned into a giant piece of crap and fell on me. (laughs) 
Okay, I'll go to the shrink tomorrow if you'll go for that bad breath that you've got, all right? That's the deal we're going to have here. No, you, you guys, it was so bizarre. It was so bizarre. We look at the ceiling fan, and the ceiling fan's perfectly still. So she says, okay, Greg, it's been a weird night, and, and she doesn't even know about the breathing. Uh, it's been a really weird night. You probably just were having a really bad nightmare. I said, I was awake, honey. I was awake. She goes, I was probably, you know, sometimes you're in that half-wake, half-sleep state, kind of doing what I do with my daughter, uh, explaining away the shadow thing. So we, she lays down. She goes back to sleep. I lay down, and I don't go back to sleep for maybe an hour, hour and a half, but I'm praying the whole time. But at some point, I do fall back asleep for maybe about 15, 20 minutes. I don't know. And then I wake up again. And now I've got that adrenaline rush going on, the, the 100 cups of coffee. And I look at the clock. I remember the sort of thing. I look at the clock, and it was 3.10. And I'm telling you that because I was, I may have been asleep the, the previous one, but this one, I was wide awake. It's 3.10. And something inside as my heart is racing, says, look out the window, look out the window, look out the window. So I run and look out the window. And I look down, and my, my daughter's room was right beneath ours. Okay, and six hours earlier, we'd been doing that stuff with the bats flying down. I look down, and I see this shadowy figure coming out of her room. And, and uh, it starts to float again, uh, across the backyard. And it looked like, frankly, a giant Darth Vader helmet. My first thought was that someone's kidnapping my daughter. And they're crawling, crawling out the window. So I screamed to my wife, call the police! And I'm so glad she didn't do that. <laughs> she woke up, but she didn't know what I screamed. But I ran out the front door and around the house... It's April, Minnesota, it's cold, you can see your breath, and I'm in my underwear, but I run around the, the backyard. As I turn the house, I think I see the back end of this thing going over the privacy fence, six-foot-high six foot privacy fence of my neighbor. So I holler, stop! And I run as fast as I can, and I jump on that privacy fence to climb it. I scream out, stop again, and now there's nothing there. There's nothing there. And it, I, it was only like three seconds before, you know, between when I screamed and when I got there. And I have one foot over the fence like this, straddling it. The fence is going back and forth like this because I hit it so hard. And I'm thinking, here I am in my underwear in April. I am certifiably nuts. I'm certifiably nuts. Now see, this is why you'd have a hard time convincing me that the spiritual realm isn't real. Uh, When you go through an experience like that, the coin drops in the slot, kind of. And see, I had two more instances that happened the next week after this. I want to tell you this, however, that while there was this incredible vortex of fighting against evil, God showed up in some of the most beautiful, powerful ways I've ever seen in my life. It was, and what I found is that that the more real the spiritual realm of darkness becomes, the more real God becomes. That's why spiritual, a lot of times I think people don't, don't feel like God is real because they're not on the front lines. You get in the front line, God shows up. He shows up in proportion to the degree that you need him. And when you get in these kind of situations, God shows up. For example, the day after this happened, I was supposed to go on a retreat. Uh, I was going to do a retreat uh, for Church of the Open Door. I think it was Church of the Open Door. And uh, I almost didn't go because Shelly was saying, you can't leave us in this kind of situation. Um, we, we, by the way, called a group of people from a seminar that I'd walked out of because it was too crazy. We called them because they did house cleansing. We had them come over and cleanse their house, pray over this house. And um, uh, the, the, that, the stuff in my house stopped on a dime when, when that happened. They just took authority over every room in the house. and It felt nuts to me, but, you know, when situations like that, your, your criteria for nuts kind of goes down a little bit. I went on this retreat because I believe the worst thing you can ever do with regard to the enemy is get intimidated. 
You're, play, you're playing into their hands. You got to go forward. So I went forward. And on this retreat, I was so shaken up from having two weeks of the spiritual warfare, three encounters in two weeks, having gone with very, very little sleep during this whole time. All about all I did, all I remember doing at this retreat is crying. But God used that crying to slaughter everybody. It was the most amazing thing. I, I was blubbering. I would say three words and blubber, blubber, blubber. But God made everyone blubber. And, and the power of God was there. It was just an amazing thing. My point is that the spiritual realm is real. God, open our eyes to the reality of the spiritual realm, to see what is real. The truth is we are in the middle of a war zone. The truth is what's real is that there are powers that oppress the culture, and, and there are demonic forces that can oppress people. And what's real and what's true is that our job as kingdom people is to resist that, to struggle against that, to fight against that by living in the outrageous, radical, loving way that Jesus Christ lived. A person asked me, is it, are we supposed to hate the devil? Or are we supposed to love the devil because the Bible says to love your enemies? It's a very good question. Now, I really believe on all these things, you've got to go straight from Scripture. And here's what, here's, here's what you find in Scripture. Nowhere does it say we're supposed to hate the devil. It, it, it doesn't say we hate the devil. It says resist the devil, fight against the devil, struggle, but it doesn't say hate. And I think that hate, harboring hatred towards anybody and anything is not a healthy thing to do. But neither does it say we're supposed to love the devil as though there's hope for him. Um, I, that love your enemies applies to, other, to, to human enemies. What the Bible says is simply resist the devil. Do warfare against the enemy. Uh, treat them like forces. Don't take it personally, but just live in a way that resists them. And when we do that, folks, here's what it looks like. As in everything else about the kingdom walk, it looks like Jesus Christ. Look, Jesus Christ did warfare in two ways. I'm going to close by just talking about these two ways. First, he did warfare in a very specific way. And what I mean by that is this. He didn't go looking for demons. He didn't go looking for demons behind every little ill in, in society or in, or in human life. But when he came upon something that was a demonic stronghold, he simply took authority over it in Jesus' name. So when he comes upon a person who is demonized, he takes authority over it. A person who's, who's, who's got a demonically induced sickness, he takes authority over it. That's a specific warfare that he did. When you find strongholds, you take authority over it. The trouble that we face is that we are so westernized and secularized in our worldview, we don't usually consider the possibility that there's something demonic going on. And so we miss opportunities to do warfare. John Eldridge, in his marvelous book called Waking the Dead, it's a great book on spiritual warfare. Um, he, he, taught, he gives an illustration of his small group, his covenant group that he does life with. And his covenant group at one point, he says, was just going into a funk, as covenant groups sometimes do. And they were misunderstanding one another, and they were getting hostile to one another, getting angry with one another, holding judgments against one another. And it looked like the small group might even start to, to fragment and dissipate. But it finally occurred to somebody that maybe something in the spiritual realm is going on that at least contributes to this. And so they bound together to do spiritual warfare and they woke up to the reality that they were being played against each other by, by a principality and power. And they declared, declared war on it. Now they still had to do the normal human stuff of reconciling and forgiving and working through issues. That's, that's going to happen. This isn't a cure-all, a magic bullet kind of a thing. But you'll find it's very hard to work productively towards reconciliation if you're being polluted by spiritual forces. So when you're in a covenant group and the covenant group starts going funky and there's misunderstanding and judgments and those kind of things... Yes, deal with the human stuff, work through the human stuff, try to get understanding, but at the same time, you've got to unite together and realize that there's forces out there that don't want you to stay together. 
There's forces out there that want to blow you apart. The same thing's true in a marriage. You go through times where you're just kind of funky and you don't like each other and you're judging one another and you're bitter towards one another and you're self-righteous towards one another. Go to a counselor. Do the normal, natural, human stuff. Talk through the issues. Talk with friends. Get help. But also realize that there's a power out there that wants you to split apart. And whatever areas you have that are vulnerable, he's... The enemy doesn't fight fair. He finds your little weak, your wound, and he puts his finger in it over and over. Then he pours some salt on it, puts his finger in again. So whatever weak areas you got, he's going to go after. And so you, 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 yes, have to deal with the weak areas and talk about those things, but also do warfare. Do warfare. Getting your marriage to work is an act of war. Getting your covenant group to work is an act of war. Same thing with, with issues with your kids, with issues with their neighbors, issues with your coworkers. Understand that there is really a power out there that is working that can contribute to, at least, some of the garbage that you're putting up with. So take authority over it, even as you're working through uh, the normal human stuff. And when you're dealing with anger issues or you're dealing with radical doubt or you're dealing with, with judgments in your mind or you're dealing with fear in your mind or you're, you're, you find that you're inclined to gossip or you're inclined to judge people or you're struggling with addictions or other destructive behaviors in your life, sabotaging relationships perhaps, or you're dealing with sickness and disease, in all of those areas, frame it as warfare. Uh, yes, deal with the natural stuff. Take your medication if medication is what's needed. Go to a counselor if a counselor is what's needed. Do all, do due diligence on the natural human stuff. But you've got to also understand that there's a warfare dimension to this. When you're dealing with a hostile kind of mindset, realize that you're being played by an enemy. So deal with that in the natural way, but also deal with it in a supernatural way by doing the specific kind of warfare that Jesus did. Fighting against it. Shooting in the spiritual realm. Jesus did specific warfare, and so must we. But he also did general warfare. And the way he did general warfare was simply by how he lived in revolt against the powers. His life was one sustained revolt against the powers. He revolted against the powers that fuel greed and create poverty by refusing to cash in on the riches of his, 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 his dignity as the Son of God, and he rather chose to live in solidarity with the poor. We are called to follow that example. So ask God, seek, honestly seek God, how your lifestyle can be a sustained revolt against the strong pull of greed in our culture that is fueled by the powers. Seek God's will and talk to friends about how you can better simplify your life to live more frugally so you spend less on yourself and more on the poor and more in advancing the kingdom of God. And Jesus revolted against the powers that fuel all forms of social oppression. By the way, he went out of his way to befriend and serve the beggars and the lepers and the women and other marginalized people in society. We are called to follow his example. So seek God's will. Ask God how, and talk to friends about how you can adjust your life to be able to be freed up, to have the time and the mental energy to even notice those that society tends not to notice. And to go out of your way and befriend those that are so easily overlooked. Those who are physically or mentally, cognitively disabled. Uh, notice them and reach out to them. Uh, time to spend with visiting prisoners and uh, folks who are in prison. That's one of the things we're commanded to do. Uh, go out of your way, notice and befriend and non-judgmentally love and serve those groups of people that the status quo religion of our day, fueled as it is by the powers that puts it in last place and steps on and, and feeds off of. 
We're called to follow Jesus' example and noticing and reaching out to the marginalized. That's warfare. That's how we resist the powers. And Jesus revolted against the powers that fuel racism. By the way, he broke every cultural taboo there was about racial lines in the first century. And by the way, he went out of his way to befriend the Samaritans and the Gentiles and the Roman centurion. We are called to follow his example, which means we're called to go out of our way to make room in our life so we can befriend and serve people whose ethnicity is different from our own. And when we come upon a racist, as I did, we're to follow Jesus' example and not hate him, but rather to understand that they are in bondage and now the enemy is trying to get me in bondage by hating him. And we break that bondage and we do warfare in the right direction by refusing to hate anybody, but rather we agree with God that they are worth dying for and we love them. And finally, Jesus revolted against the powers that fuel hatred and violence by being willing to suffer at the hands of his enemies rather than retaliating against them. We are called very explicitly to follow that example in the way we respond to our enemies, whether they're national enemies or whether they're enemies on our block or at, the, at, at our office where we work or, or in the church. We're called to never retaliate, but to love them. When you feel hostility towards somebody and you want to declare war on them, realize you're being played by the powers. And you make a choice. You're either going to walk in the freedom of Christ or you're going to become a pawn. And if you walk in the freedom of Christ, you're now pushing back the powers, but if you become a pawn, you're now fueling the powers. That is the reality of the situation we are in. The spiritual realm, folks, is real. The spiritual war is real. Our call to live as radical soldiers in a radical countercultural way, revolting against the powers, that is real. But what's also real is God has told us that he'll use every Christ-like act we engage in to push back the powers and to advance the kingdom. And what you got to know is real is that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. What you got to know is real is that God is not giving us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. What you got to know is that perfect love casts out all fear. What you've got to know, this is what's real, is that you are seated with Christ in heavenly realms, Ephesians 1 and 2, seated with Christ in heavenly realms, far above all principalities and powers and dominions and authorities. And what you've got to know is real, lock it in. If you're going to boldly do this warfare, is that Christ, when he died on the cross, he took everything that was written against us, all the ammo that the powers have against us, and he nailed it to the cross, and he made a laughing stock of the enemy, praise God. So now we, who are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, have nothing to fear. Whatever else you get from this message, don't get fear, get boldness. Get on the front lines and live life in the reality of the war zone. Would you close your eyes for a moment as I ask the worship team to come up here and we're going to go into another time of worship. I just want to ask the Holy Spirit right here to seal this message. Seal it, Lord. Seal it and open our spiritual eyes to not just get this intellectually, but to get it in the gut to the point where it affects our attitudes and affects our words and affects our behaviors and affects our pocketbook and affects what we buy and what we don't buy and where we live and where we don't live and how we respond to aggressive people and how we don't respond. Father, make it real to us to motivate us to enlist and get on the front lines. And now, Lord, as we go to take up this offering, we do it with an awareness that every good gift comes from you. And so, God, you've given us the opportunity to sacrificially advance the kingdom by how we give. Guide us and lead us in how we should steward your resources and be glorified now in this time of warfare. And, Lord, as we do this warfare, as we do this worship, Make it a time. Help us to realize we're doing warfare. Every praise towards you is an assault on the enemy. So help us to enter into this with passion, with fervency, with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our body. 
in Jesus' name. If you know who you are in Christ and the Spirit of God is in you and you know where you're seated and the enemy's under your feet and you got nothing to fear, so go out in boldness. You know, go, go out in the power of God and, and you live in that and you live that countercultural radical lifestyle that declares war on the enemy in every specific way and every general way. Our job is to be a kingdom tribe that revolts against the powers. Amen? Amen. 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 Uh, before I send us off, I want you to know that if I could ask the prayer teams to come up here. If you have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, maybe this message activated something. Uh, maybe you got to deal with something. Maybe it's something totally unrelated. That's fine. I encourage you to come forward and receive prayer uh, with these folks. If you're here this morning and you have never really enlisted in the battle, because that's what it is to become a Christian. Is, is you're signing up for, for a vocation, a job service, a military service. And you've never surrendered your life, authentically surrendered your life to Christ. Why don't you come forward, talk to these folks. They'd love to explain to you how to go about that. Father, uh, we just thank you for the privilege to come together like we have here this morning and for visiting us here this morning. And we pray, Lord God, that you would just empower us to have spiritual vision that goes against all the indoctrinating lies of our culture. And God, we're aware that as soon as we walk out of there, we'll be bombarded with delusion. And uh, Lord, Holy Spirit, we give you permission to just... Uh, bug us, nag us, to keep us awake, to not fall under this delusion, but to see what is really going on, to live our life uh, in revolt against the powers, Lord God, uh, by living in radical love, loving others as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. We go out of here, Lord God, in your identity, in your call, in your boldness, in Jesus' name. And all God's warriors said, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Go out and do battle. Do battle. <laughs>